good to have a red dot to put your feet on. I um, it's, it's a, a real gift uh, to know where you're going and where you stand, right? So um, I hope they don't fight over the red dots out there. So we're going to look at one verse in the scripture today, Philippians three nine. We've been working our way through that, uh, and today we're going to uh, just settle in on this one verse because it's. Uh, one of those verses in the Bible that is crystal clear, I think, about uh, what uh, God has done for us in Christ. So, But before I read that, let me uh, pray, and uh, would you join with me? Lord, we, we come to you today thanking you for the reality, the truth of the gospel, that you are for us, that you have done this work that we could never do. And I pray today that uh, you would... Uh, will warm us on this cold day uh, by the fire of your passion and your love for your people. pray that you would bless us in that. I pray that you would assure us uh, in the midst of uh, tough times, challenging times, uh, that you indeed are for us and that you love us. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Philippians 3.9, text is in the bulletin and also up on the screen behind me. This is God's Word. And we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So um, what Paul's been doing in this text is, remember last week he had that big list of his pedigree of all the things that were true of him, that uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, that he had done all these things, circumcised on the eighth day, that he had this tremendous uh, heritage behind him. And that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing that he had that heritage. But when he compares that heritage, the good thing that he has, to the thing that he has in Jesus Christ, it's manure. That's the word he uses. And so it's not that those things are bad. But in comparison to what it, the riches that he has in Jesus Christ, the great blessing that he has in Jesus, this other stuff is, is nothing. And that's, the, and that's important for us to uh, unpack because we are, as human beings, we give our hearts to things all the time, right? We, we think that this thing is the most valuable thing. This thing is the thing, I must have this or without this life is just not worth very much. So what Paul wants us to see is, is that those things that we give ourselves to, particularly those things that we think that make us somebody, or those things that we think that make us acceptable to God, or maybe in a dark sort of way, make us better than somebody else. That those things uh, compared to what we have in Jesus Christ are are less than nothing, right? And so... Uh, and he's going to hold up before us the very value of that. Jesus echoed these words in uh, Matthew 13 when he told some parables about the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what he's getting at here. That the, the, the being known by Christ, being found in him, as he says, belonging to Jesus Christ, 
is the most valuable thing in the universe. It is the most valuable thing that we could ever uh, know or have or be about ourselves. That's it. That's the, the, you know, and, and the thing the thing that is so incredible about that is we hear that and and it's hard for us to believe that, isn't it? I mean, we're in church, so of course we're supposed to say, oh, yeah, in church, this is this is the thing that's, that's most valuable about me, most important about me. But in, in, the, in truth, that is what is of most value. And Paul is trying to help the Philippians, help us. Settle our joy, settle our hope, and something like that. That that what's true about us is what we have in Christ. Now the the problem with that is one of the things that we do with Jesus is we Jesus is useful. He's he's helpful. He he does these things. He gives us this this truth, and he he tells us these things. So it makes us better husbands, better wives, better better employees, better brothers, brother sisters, better boyfriends, better girlfriends, he'd, he'd better roommates. You know, he does this stuff for us. So really what Jesus is, is he is a ticket to something else, right? That, that somehow or other, that what he does for me is he, you know, he's a blessing. Sure, it's good to know him. But the real blessing is that he enables me to be this way or he enables me to do this thing or, or, or these things are, are true, right? But what Paul is getting at here is know that to be found in him is the richest, greatest thing ever. Right. And so he wants us to 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 kind of confront. He wants the Philippians to confront that the real source of joy, the real source of hope, the the real source of, of 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 our identity is not found in all of these things that we give our hearts to, but rather found in the one who has given his heart to us. Is found in the one who has come to us, right? And that's that's exactly what he's he's getting at uh, in 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 this passage, right? And what he says here is is that that we have this gift, that we have this righteousness, and that this righteousness comes to us from God, and that it, it this righteousness we hear this word and we think, well, what is righteousness? Righteousness is the ability to stand before God when God holds up to you all of the things you've ever said or done, all of the things you've ever thought, all of those things, he holds those things up before you, the good things and the bad things, and he says none of these things are worth anything in terms of your standing before me. None of them. None of them. That the only means that we have to stand before God, when God holds up before us who we are, is what God gives us. You see, this righteousness that he talks about here, it comes from God. Now that is, that is such an alarming thing to, to us because the, you should be thinking, well, there's, there is absolutely nothing that I can do, nothing that I can add, nothing that I can bring to this. I can't I can't achieve righteousness before God. I can't do something that makes me suddenly acceptable, right? That that I can I can say, well, I did these things and I didn't do these things, and so God, of course, you pay attention to me. Of course, you 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 uh, uh, are aware of me. When in fact, what is true of us is that we have no righteousness of our own, none. And so we're in a desperate, uh, we're in a desperate position there that God must supply that to us, right? 
Uh, and the thing that is, is so great about this is, is that he says that we have this righteousness from God that depends on faith, that we want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So what we think about this is, well, how do I, how do I get that? How do I get that righteousness? How does it come to me? He says, well, it depends on faith. Now, Here's, here's the thing, the way we tend to think about that is, is that God is doing this thing over here with Jesus, right? And he's, he's you know, these, Jesus comes and he does all these things and that kind of stuff. And then he says to us, listen, you know, you can't achieve, you're not good enough, you can't achieve righteous standing before me over here. You can't, you can't do that. So what you got to do uh, is, I got Jesus over here, I got him doing this thing, and so you need to find him. I was laughing with a friend of mine of a certain age this week. We were laughing about the 70s that you could drive around and people had these uh, uh, bumper stickers on their car that said, I found it. Some of you are like, what, what is that? Well, it was a, it was a license plate from, or a, a bumper sticker from a, a well-known ministry and that you were supposed to get people to come up to you and say, what is it you found, Right? Well, if that's the way we think about the gospel, and that was, you know, God used that, that's fine. Um, but Paul would laugh at that. He would mock that. I <laughs> can't believe I just said that, but he would. He would mock that. Why? Because Paul didn't find Jesus. He, what was Paul looking for? He was looking for Christians to kill them, to do away with them, to undo them. So, so who found who? Jesus found Paul, right? And that's that's exactly what he says here that he wants to be found in him. Not he doesn't say I want to find Jesus, and by finding Jesus I get this righteousness of my own. No, he's found in him. Jesus came all the way to Paul. He stopped him. He found him. The treasure seeks us out, right? The pearl of great price seeks us out. It's not that we go and look for it, but God comes after us. I was laughing uh, this morning looking around at some of the folks who were in, in, in the early service, and there were a couple of married couples who were there who I remember talking to the women, the, the wives, in that years ago. And they said they all had this sort of the same story. Well, there's this guy. And I don't really like the way he looks. Don't really like the way he dresses. Don't really like the way he kind of carries himself. But you know, he keeps showing up. And he keeps pursuing me. And he does little things. And he comes and he talks to me. And he kind of seeks me out. And he keeps pursuing me. And, and you know, he's... He's getting better looking as, as he does that. <laughs> he, looks, he looks better to me. And now they're married and have 25 kids, right? So the, so the, so the, thing, the thing that you have to see about that is that one of the ways that we know that this righteousness comes to us is not that, that we go and find it. In fact, Paul would say, listen, dead people can't find things. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. This righteousness must even come and find you. 
And, and the way that we appropriate that, the way that that comes to us is by faith. And even that faith itself is a gift from God. That he is doing all of this so that he looks upon us and sees that we are unable to achieve this on our own. We're unable to drum up faith on our own. And what does he do? He comes and he does that for us because we left to our own devices. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so he must make us alive. He must give us his righteousness. And he must even give us the ability to trust that. And he must come and find us. And that's the great news about the gospel is that the righteousness of God that we're talking about here is not the piece of cheese in the middle of the maze that you're running around here and every time you take a wrong turn, he shocks you to get you back on the right track. No, it comes all the way to you. Jesus, God moves heaven and earth to come to you. And so this this puts the lie to us in the way in which we think the way Christianity works. If you leave here today, God forbid, if you leave here today and you have an accident on the way home and you spend the rest of your life in a bed, unable to move or speak, that someone would have to care for you, that someone would have, that you would be utterly dependent upon other people for the rest of your life, that you couldn't do a single thing, you could not serve God in any way. Maybe you could pray. That does not change the fact that if you're in Christ, that this righteousness has found you and that you are resting upon that work, that you have perfect righteousness, you have perfect standing before God. And what that means is that the day you face God in judgment, you can hold your head high because when God looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes what we think the gospel is and what we kind of settle it on is, is that Jesus died for my sins, right? That's the way we talk about it. And that is certainly true. Punishment is removed. Jesus has atoned for your sins. But the fact of the matter is the gospel is even richer by far than that because what we have in Christ is his perfect record of righteousness. Not just that he has removed punishment, but that you have the full righteousness that Jesus Christ has. You cannot get higher standing before God than what you have in Jesus Christ, right? One of the great passages of the, of the scriptures is that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. And we don't need to add anything else to that. Now, what I want you to take from this today is some assurance. I want you to to rest in the fact today that it doesn't depend on you. One of the things that robs us of assurance is the fact that we think of ourselves and we, we think of our struggles and we think of our temptations and we think of all those things and we kind of look at that and we think, oh, how could I be righteous? Yeah, that's a great question. How could you be righteous? Your standing is not dependent upon those things. Our assurance comes from the the not looking upon ourselves, but looking at Jesus Christ and seeing what it is that he has done for us. Now, next week, what we're going to look at is how that looking to Christ and how receiving that righteousness shifts the way we live. But this precedes that. This this hope, this trust that we have in him, that is what allows us to stand before our judge 
completely, completely righteous. I want you to be assured of that today. But I will also submit to you that one of the reasons why you're not assured of this today is because this, this language, this talking about this, seems to be kind of legal, kind of cold, kind of dry, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Right? But what you have to see in this is a pulse of warmth and love. What the gospel is, is not just that God does this legal thing for you. That God somehow or other looks at you, and, and sometimes I think this is the distortion of the gospel that we get, that, that, that God looks at us and that he somehow thinks that, oh, well, Jesus has done this thing for uh, uh, and, and died for them, and, they, and they, they've kind of trusted that, and so now I have to receive them. But in fact, what we see about the very nature of Jesus Christ and the very heart of God is that this righteousness that we have, that this gift of faith that we have is spurred onto us, is given to us, not because God sees this problem that he's got to solve, but because he loves us, because he is for us, that his heart beats with passion for us and that nothing would keep him from loving us. Nothing would keep him from doing this for us. Nothing would keep him away from us. That Jesus enters into this world. Why? Because he loves us. Jesus does this work, lives our life. Why? Because he loves us. God is glorified in the fact that he does this for us, that he achieves this righteousness for us, not just in a legal sense, but he does it because he is passionate for his people. That the love that we have, the gift of faith, the gift of righteousness, those gifts don't come simply because of a legal thing. They come to us because God is for us. That we are dear to him. That we matter to him. That his heart is poured out over us in love. And how do we know that? How do we know that God loves us? Well, certainly we know that in the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot say, as hard as life may be, that God doesn't love you and look at the cross and say, that's not love. That is God's answer to us. But there's more than that. What do we see Jesus doing? One of the ways that we know that God has a heart of passion for us that's not just this legal thing, but that when Jesus Christ comes face to face with the, with the consequences of our sin, when he comes face to face with the consequences of our rebellion, when he comes face to face with the consequences of our death, what does he do? He weeps. He cries. You know that Jesus loves you because he cries over the effect of sin and death. But more than that, where else do you see Jesus cry? You see him crying on the road to Jerusalem and he sees Jerusalem in rebellion against him. Hating him, knowing that they will kill him. And how does he respond? He weeps. Because his heart is passionately turned towards his people. His heart is broken because he loves. It's a mysterious thing. How can the God of the universe have his heart broken by, by, by human rebellion? But he does. That's why Spurgeon could say, A Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. That Jesus who comes and wipes away your tears wipes your tears away because... He's for you. He loves you. And he knows the, the, the weight and the power of sin and death. 
And it was his love that compelled him to get between you and the consequences of your sin and your rebellion. So that this righteousness that we have comes to us from the heart of passion and love that God has for his people. J.I. Packer said, To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. God's not just tolerating you. He delights in his people. And so the very evidence that we have, that we have this righteousness, is found not just in the fact that he's done this thing for us and now he has to put up with us, but his heart beats with warmth for his people. I'm reading a book uh, well, I just read it, uh, called Prayers in the Night uh, by Tish Harrison Warren. And she talks about um, that her oldest daughter, when she was uh, younger, uh, did what little kids do. And that is, she would ask the same question over and over again. And one of the questions she would ask as a three and four year old was, what's your name? She would ask her dad and her mom, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? And then, you know, my name is Stephen Tate Shelby. What's your name? My name. You know, they just do that. And now she's a tweener. So whatever that is, I think that's somewhere between 9 and 36. Anyway, um, whatever, whatever that is. And she says her daughter repeatedly asks her a question now. Do you love me? Mom, Dad, do you love me? Do you love me? We ask that question of God all the time, don't we? Do you love me? Do you see me? Do you know me? Do I matter? Right? And then some of us, you know, who struggle with that, kind of move in the opposite direction. I remember years ago, right after uh, uh, the second President Bush was in office, his two uh, twin daughters were caught underage drinking in a bar in Austin, Texas. (laughs) And, uh, of course, the president has to speak to his daughters about that, and they were all distraught, well, Only as distraught as 19-year-olds are when they get caught doing something like that. And can you believe that the Secret Service let them go in a bar and order drinks? How weird is that? I I wonder what the real story is behind that. Anyway, anyway, I digress. But um, he said to them, I love you. I will always love you. You can't do anything to make me... Stop loving you, so quit trying. (laughs) Right? Our Father loves us. And so this forensic righteousness that we have, this alien righteousness and standing that we have, is not something that God just 
erected, but it is driven by his passion for his church. It is driven by his passion for the people that he loves. And so whatever else may be true, whatever other question we may ask, there and there are plenty of questions in life that I don't know if there's an answer to it, but I do know this, that when we ask God in Jesus Christ, do you love me? There can be no doubt. There can be no question. There can be no turning to the right or to the left. But his heart is compelled in love for us. How can that be? Well, it can be because he loves us. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to you today, this is such uh, hard and powerful and wonderful uh, for us to think about today. I pray that you would... You would help us to to be moved today to see uh, your heart for your people. Lord, I pray that uh, we would delight in your righteousness and delight even more in your love. And so I pray that our assurance today would be rooted in your character, in your promise, in your action in your work. Help us today, we pray, to take you at your word. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's uh, use uh, uh, this confession of sin. Uh, It's in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Pray with me. All your loving kindness is in your Son. I bring him to you in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay for my debts of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgression, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, His holy life for my unchaste ways. His righteousness for my dead works. His life for my life. Christians, hear these words of encouragement. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm.